This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. love the PBS series Now Hear This, in which the violinist and conductor Maestro Scott Yu ambles around Europe, sometimes with his flautist wife Alice Dade, to chase down the musical journeys and map out the lives of composers such as Vivaldi, Handel, Scarlatti, Hayden and Mozart. And it isn't only the stories and connections that Scott uncovers that make it such compelling viewing. What I love equally about the show is Scott Yu's infectious enthusiasm and curiosity for his subject. I feel like I am there making discoveries with him. And a couple of months ago, I got to sit across a dinner table from Scott Yu, although I have to confess, at that point in time, I did not know that I was dining with the chief conductor and artistic director of the Mexico City Philharmonic Orchestra and the charismatic host of a major PBS series. But what was so fascinating about our dinner was the amazing intensity of his curiosity in everyone else's story and the fact that it never once came up that he was in fact the most famous person in the room. (laughs) And this weekend, the renowned violinist is performing with pianist Ayako Suruta and cellist Bjorn Sang at First Baptist Church of Columbia in the Odyssey Chamber Music Series concert of the Brahms Piano Trios. And so it is a huge delight for me to have pianist and executive director for Odyssey Chamber Music Series, Ayako Suruta, and violinist maestro Scott Yu all to myself this evening. Hello, Ayako. Cohen Scott. Hi, Diana. Hello. So, Scott, I have to say that I'm kind of glad I didn't know who you were when we had dinner because I would have been too starstruck to speak and would have been a bumbling (laughs) idiot. And I'm sure that the PBS series has made you more visible to autograph hunters. Do you like that spotlight or are you more comfortable in the partial anonymity of a small Midwest town? I've been recognized, I think, twice or maybe three times in the last three years. So I don't think I'm a target of autograph hunters at all. Um, but I do really like living in a small Midwestern town because there are really, really nice people who live here. And it's all about the people. And I feel very lucky to have settled down here with my wife and get to play music and eat food together and and go to concerts and and do all the things that make life worth living. Well, your infectious love for your subjects, plus your ability to whip out your violin and knock out a little Vivaldi or Handel at a moment's notice, make you such a wonderful television presenter that it seems a little remarkable that you and television have not formed a relationship before now. And in some ways, it was thanks to Brahms that this series came about. Tell us the origin story for the Now Hear This series. Oh, that's a it's a good one. Um, and it involves Bion Sang, who is one of my oldest friends, one of my best friends. Bion said, let's play all the three Brahms trios. We've never done it before. I said, fine. And he said, why don't you do a presentation on them as well at the University of Texas, Austin? Why don't you do a presentation on them and we'll invite an audience and, and people will learn about the Brahms piano trios, and then the next day we'll perform all three of them. And I thought, great. So I spent a good two weeks writing kind of a long script that 
basically tells the story of Brahms's life through those three piano trios. The C minor piano trio was written at the end of his life. The B major piano trio was written as his first chamber music piece and also rewritten as his last. And then the C major piano trio is sort of in between. And you can almost track Brahms's life's journey through those three pieces. And I thought it was just fascinating to to look at a person through his work. And so one April afternoon in 2016 in Austin, Texas, we got on stage and we're about to talk about these three piano trios. And I looked out of the audience and there were seven people in the audience. <laughs> and, and we were, I think we were both just shocked that that nobody thought it was interesting enough to come. So I, I was kind of a little bit crestfallen, but you know, hey, I soldiered on and and those seven people deserved to to be informed and, and entertained. And so I, you know, I gave it my best. And uh the next day there was a concert and we played the concert and somebody very tall came backstage and says, nice concert. And I said, thank you very much. And he said, but I really liked what you did yesterday. And I was very surprised by that because I thought I had memorized everybody's face in the audience because there were only seven of them. But I guess he escaped me. And then he said, my name is Harry Lynch. I'm a producer for PBS and we should make a television show together. And I was just kind of shocked and I, I thought it was a joke or something. And so I, I didn't get his number or anything like that. I didn't follow <laughs> up. And uh, a few weeks later, he called me and he said, "I'm this is Harry Lynch. Do you remember me? We we met a couple of weeks ago. And, and, and sure enough, he was following up. And I don't know, maybe eight months later, or nine months later, we, we were filming the pilot. But these three piano trios, by virtue of that event in Austin, was kind of a life-changing thing for me and and my wife. And so I feel very grateful to the music and, and to beyond my friend for inviting me to Austin. And uh, it just goes to show you that you have to take every single public performance when you're a performer, you have to take every single public performance very seriously, even if there are only seven people in the audience, because you never know who's going to be in the audience. It's true. You know, there are moments in the show when it feels like we, the audience, and you are discovering something for the first time, which either makes you a fabulous actor or you have a production team that is really good at springing surprises on you. <laughs> well, Diana, that's very, um, if the director of the show were listening, he would be incredibly flattered by that <laughs> comment. Um, so we take great pains to conceal certain things when the director is speaking with a guest, he will sometimes have me block my ears in order to not know what the answer is going to be. Um, there are certain times when we'll enter a room and it will be particularly spectacular. And since I am not an actor, my reaction will only be authentic the one time. So there are days when I spend a lot of time, hours waiting in the car or in the van, um, waiting for them to set up. And then once they've lit 
it takes so long to light a room. Once they finally lit it, then they say, okay, Scott, come on in. And they'll, they'll make sure that I look okay. And then I'll walk in and have that, that authentic reaction of, of astonishment. Because after that, it's, it's very difficult for me, um, with my skill set to duplicate that. I just simply can't. Um, so a lot of that is just the production. They just are very careful about letting me see or hear things for the first time on camera. Well, it is such a contagious excitement that you have that it makes me equally excited about this moment in time. And I'm always curious about how people or organizations or or TV productions can reduce some of the stiffness and the remote elitism of classical music, because that kind of is how a lot of people see it. And and in that series, you make it all very human, very exciting, very now. And I echo for you who've spent, you spent your life in the classical musical world. And it feels like it's probably more of the fault of the industry rather than the composers themselves, this feeling of, of elitism and stiffness. How do you see your role within Odyssey Chamber Music Series is helping to change that? Oh, that is a very interesting question. It's interesting to think about the origin of the classical music to begin with, because if you think about Brahms, for example, I mean, his beginning was so humble, and Brahms comes from a background where he was performing at a pub, you know, and this is kind of how he made his living because he was not very famous. But I think for Odyssey, we are trying to break down that barrier by first making this entire season admission free. So the concerts are completely free and open to everybody. And the fact that we are holding these concerts in a venue that is the church, which is a very public place and welcoming everybody through the door, I think is also quite symbolic in reaching out to everybody. I mean, I think it is also, for me, it's having that uh, a different series of music, that it isn't only the, the classical great, that you combine it with more contemporary composers, underrepresented composers. That's very exciting. How much do you feel like you have to play to the audience you have? And, and how much do you feel it's your job to grow their knowledge? Oh, right. For the programming, that's interesting because I actually don't think too much about it, to be honest with you. I just go with what attracts uh, me to that particular music. And the same thing goes for the musicians. If I like that particular performer, then I'll be more inclined to reach out to that person and say, hey, I have this concert series, would you like to come and play? So um, I think... It's not that there is a particular category or particular pieces that I feel I need to program into our series, but rather I do feel like, as similar to what Scott is doing with Now Hear This, I feel more obliged to share our excitement for music and share that with the audiences rather than, you know, bringing out the encyclopedia of chamber music repertoire (laughs) and feeding that to the audiences because who really wants that? Well, back in the 19th century, Brahms, Schumann, Vorjak were writing the popular music of their time. But in the modern era, it's tough to compete with rock and pop for attention. Scott, (laughs) why does classical music feel less accessible today? Diana, I think that's a really excellent question. And here's my take on it. 
Back in the 18th century, the difference between something like the magic flute and vaudeville was not much. Same instruments and basically the same language. Of course, today we think of magic flute as being high art, but back then, not as much. If you fast forward to the 1900s and you think about, quote, high art music like Schoenberg or Webern or even a composer like Korngold, and then you think about the popular music of the day, they've gotten so different, um, both wonderful, but so different. And I think that is something that's difficult for a lot of people to to bridge that gap. That's part one. And then part two, if you look at the instruments that a popular band will use, they're largely electronic. And then if you think about the instruments that a um, an art music group will employ, they're mostly acoustic. Um, I think that has really led listeners' ears to much more of an electronic sound. And so by comparison, classical music seems kind of staid and not exciting, which it, of course, is not. It's, it's, it's incredibly exciting. But I think those two factors have made classical music sort of a mountain for people to climb, and, and some people just don't have the energy to do it. I feel like my brain is looking for repetition too. So it's like, oh, here comes the chorus. I can sing along now. Right. <laughs> that doesn't exist in classical music. Everything is new. Right. So when you listen to a Britney Spears song, you'll often hear that chorus 11, 12, 13 times. So if you've heard the song three or four times, you've heard the same chorus 30 or 40 times, and you get to know it. And once you know it, you like it. Um if you listen to Mahler's Ninth Symphony or Bruckner's Eighth Symphony, you know, the pieces are an hour and a half long as, as they are. So to listen to them 40 times, that's a huge, huge, huge investment. And in my opinion, a really worthwhile investment, but it's a huge investment. And so there's, you know, it's hard to compare. I do think that classical music, maybe not all classical music is for everybody, but I, I also feel very strongly that Classical music should be a small part of everyone's life because it's just, it's fantastic. I feel like people such as Frank Zappa are right on that fence between what is classical, classical music and what is contemporary classical music. Where do you see someone like Zappa fitting into the panoply? I, I totally agree with you. I mean, he's a genius. Um, if you look at especially some of the, the younger composers, what they're writing, it's hard to categorize what they are because they are very hip and some of them use electronic instruments or sound effects and, and they, they create sort of astonishing worlds of, of sound and color. And, and I don't know, I think it's very exciting to see what's happening with younger composers these days. I mean, I feel very old uh, listening to some of the youngsters compose because they're just writing things that I, I just, my brain can't fully comprehend them, but they're really exciting things happening in, in music right now. And you have really made a career out of championing contemporary composers. I mean, you have performed so many world premieres for contemporary composers. So is that a challenge when you're 
faced with an orchestra of musicians who have not been trained in that music. They've been trained in much more classical music, the, the, the greats of classical music. When you're trying to conduct an orchestra of new music that maybe has a different syncopation, is that a challenge that you really love? It is a challenge, period. Um, <laughs> it's very difficult. Sometimes you'll play a piece of new music and it's going to go swimmingly great. And then other times it, it feels like you tried to penetrate a brick wall. It's it just, it can be very difficult. Um, one of the reasons I love that kind of work is because I really enjoy first tries. I love going to restaurants for the first time or reading a book for the first time, or maybe watching a, a TV show for the first time. And for music, you know, I remember the first time I conducted a Beethoven symphony, it was the first and remember thinking, this is an unbelievable experience that everybody needs to have. Well, I've conducted all of the Beethoven symphonies many, many times. So I, those first opportunities with that music are gone, but a first opportunity with a piece by someone else, there's an ocean of talented composers out there who have written music that need first chances, first opportunities to be heard. And it's really exciting to be a part of that. Ayako, I heard you a, a couple of concerts ago playing, your, your first time, I believe, playing Fred Onoveris Walker's Dueling Pianos with your husband, Peter Miyamoto, which was a an almost terrifying thing to behold because you were both playing so incredibly fast in <laughs> tandem with each other. How was that first experience for you? It was like riding a roller coaster for the first time. <laughs> you just have to kind of go with it and hope that you won't fall off. Um, for the new composers, every time we tackle them, I feel like we're discovering new pianistic language or a new technique, uh, new harmonies, new rhythm. And so it's both exciting and terrifying at the same time that you know you're not sure if you are doing it correctly, because it's not something that we have been schooled with. So it's a new discovery altogether, usually. But I think that process of creativity is so important. And we often forget that this is integral part of performance. You know, this is actually what keeps us performers alive. Well, you're definitely not playing new music this weekend. You are playing very traditional music. You're playing Brahms piano trio. So Ayako, tell me what it is about the piano trios that captures your heart. Oh, you know, I was actually thinking so much about this because it's been my dream to perform all three Brahms trios. And I don't know why it is about Brahms, but once you fall in love with his music, you're, you're hurt. I think it's something about his humbleness, his generosity and uh, outlook to his life. You know, he has not had the easiest life and yet there was so much hope, I feel, and empathy. I don't know if you have noticed, but after COVID, when things started to open to the public, there are a lot of Brahms being scheduled. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I also don't think it's a coincidence that I came to Brahms trios around this time and that I feel the need to do it. Columbia Chorale just performed the Brahms Requiem. And I'm just really excited that the Columbia audiences will have a chance to hear so much Brahms this season. Piano trios is something that I grew up with. 
And Brum Street number one was one of the first trios that I have learned. And at the time, I was too young and perhaps had trouble performing because my hands are not terribly big. And I really had to overreach myself to reach certain chords. And I'm just really excited that I get to revisit these repertoire that I have learned as a student and to actually have a chance to perform with such outstanding professionals. I'm Rather intimidated, by the way, Scott, <laughs> to be performing this with you. I'm terribly honored, but I'm also terrified. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm terrified too. So we'll, we'll do it together. Oh, please. Yeah. So, Scott, when I knew we were going to chat, I went back to the Now Here This series and I, I thought, oh, well, I'll watch the Brahms episode. But then there isn't a Brahms episode. They <laughs> didn't make it to the top of the composers who fascinate you the most. Is Brahms on the schedule? What does intrigue you about Brahms? We are going to film our Brahms episode this coming year, probably next May, April, May, June. And I'm really looking forward to that because there are so many amazing stories to tell. Of course, the most famous classical music movie was Amadeus, and that's as good a movie as you can make. And the way they treated classical music was so outstandingly genius and fantastic. But I don't understand why nobody's written a movie about Brahms because it's it, the, the story is just so great. I mean, he's in love with his best friend's wife his, his whole life and, and never marries, gets engaged, but calls it off because he's in love with somebody else. I, I don't know. To me, the story is just so ripe and the music is so fantastic. Sorry, I, I don't even know if that was a good, that was kind of a terrible <laughs> answer to your question. Um, in terms of these trios, I too, like Ayako, I heard these trios as a, a child. And I was always told these are too difficult for you. Like in, in high school, I was told, no, you don't, you, you can't play those yet. They're too hard for you. And then I played them in rapid succession as a professional. And I don't think I played any of them well um, because they're just too hard in a certain way. And so I too feel very intimidated by these pieces, but you know, you do the best you can and, and that's all you can do as a musician. One commenter on the piano trio said that the scoring is heaven sent for the three players for each is provided with the most grateful, satisfying occupation. <laughs> How do you feel about that, Scott? I agree for sure. I mean, I can't speak to the piano part because my understanding is the piano parts for all three trios are harder than both the violin part and the cello part combined. I mean, it's four times the work of, of the violin part. Now, for the violinist, it's difficult because each trio feels like you're walking around quicksand because you can just get sucked in very, very easily. And so you're just constantly on yellow alert, you know, hoping you don't defile the music. And I would just say about anything that Brahms wrote, I, Scott, am an ant compared to this work. I mean, I'm not, it's not that I'm not a half of Brahms. I'm not a thousandth of Brahms. So all I'm trying to do really is just not ruin his work, you know, <laughs> while playing it. And I can only just do my best and, and hope that that's enough to not make a mockery of the, of the work because it's just such extraordinary work. I mean, Brahms has packed in really almost the entire gamut of human emotion 
into three small pieces of chamber music. That's incredible. Yes, I completely agree with that. I was just thinking, Ravel Piano Trio, for example, is notoriously difficult, but it's a different kind of difficulty. And if I were to pick one that's harder, I would easily choose Brahms because you're emotionally invested as you perform and you can easily get lost in that. And that's a really very dangerous place to be. And that's, again, the quicksand that Scott was talking about. Um, piano part, I will not lie to you, is like a piano concerto. But Brahms piano concertos are a thousand times much harder, so I can't quite say that either. <laughs> Do you have a favorite movement within the three piano trios, Ayako? Oh, you know, I was thinking about this too. I do like them all. I really do. But I think for nostalgic reasons, I will probably choose the first movement of the number one. Because Hmm. it was very first Brahms trio that I've ever played. Even before I got to know his viola sonatas, his violin sonatas, his cello sonatas, it was essentially the very first Brahms chamber music. And for that reason, I have such wonderful memories of it. And so it's like revisiting that good times every time I play these trios. But B major was my first love. That was Yo-Yo Ma with Emmanuel Axe and Leonidas Cavacos playing the first movement of Brahms Trio, number one in B major. Scott, what about you? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, for a while, it was the first movement of the B major. It tends to change. It even can change during the concert mm. um, because it's it's really hard to pick. And, and it, it really depends on what the weather is. And how you're feeling that day, you know, if you're feeling kind of low, you might 
lean towards one movement. And, and if you're feeling very upbeat, uh, that day and high energy, you might go for another. Um, that one really does sort of go with the wind. Well, we will be able to find out this Sunday when Odyssey Chamber Music Series plays the Brahms Piano Trios with Ayako Suruta on piano, Maestro Scott Yu on violin and Bjorn Tang on cello. And that will be at the First Baptist Church of Columbia at 2 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. Admission is free. Masks are required and hopefully the weather will be fine. And so um, both Scott and Ayako can uh, decide which is their favorite movement based on the weather of the day thank you so much to both of you Ayako Suruta who is the founder and executive director of the Odyssey Chamber Music Series and Maestro Scott Yu violinist and chief conductor and artistic director of the Mexico City Philharmonic Orchestra and luckily for us a resident of Columbia Missouri thank you both so much for taking time to chat today thank you thank you Diana I often wonder how different my life might have been had I had the opportunity to grow up in Colombia, where there are so many organisations that help young people participate in the arts. In England, there were no marching bands or orchestras in the public school system, no show choirs or drama clubs, at least not at my school. So I am often envious of and delighted about the abundance of opportunities that exist for budding musicians, actors and artists in the Colombia public school system, as well as extracurricular ones in the non-profit world. And one of those organizations which educates and inspires young musicians is the Missouri Symphony Conservatory, which not only gives students from grades 2 through 12 performance opportunities, but also the chance to learn from people with resumes like my guest, maestro Dr. Stephen Radcliffe, a conductor who has worked all over the world, conducting repertories for symphony, chamber, ballet, opera and musical theatre. The list of his accolades and conducting performances is just too long to list, but he is the former director of the Seattle Conservatory of Music and the Seattle Youth Symphony Orchestra, and these days is the director of orchestral activities at the University of Missouri, and also the interim director of the Missouri Symphonies Conservatory. Welcome to the show, Maestro. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. I always love the flurry of adjectives that a performer amasses from reviewers. You are provocative, concentrated and powerful, urgent, amusing and ingenious, as well as brilliant, elegant and refined, which is a lot to live up to on a regular weekday morning when most of us are just feeling tired, overwhelmed and anxious. (laughs) So to what extent is that media hyperbole and to what extent are you in fact all those things? Oh, goodness. I haven't gone through the whole vocabulary of uh, adjectives. Thank goodness. That'd be enough to, I don't know, wake me up. <laughs> Certainly boost my, my uh, self-esteem. No, but I think uh, I, I, I'm not pretentious about what I do. My work with young people, my work with professionals, it's really all about bringing a great performance to life. It is all about making the music to which we have devoted our lives come alive every every night of the week uh, to to really speak to the drama and the passion and the joy and sometimes the sorrow of, of great music. And often that takes a lot of imagination and metaphors and, and a little bit of drama in, in ourselves as well. What makes one conductor different from another? You're all following the same score. What makes one person especially provocative or urgent or elegant? What are they referring to, their reviewers? Well, I think 
like any art form, whether it's theater or painting, all artists bring to the table, whether it's to the canvas or whether it's to the theater stage or whether it's to the orchestra, their own situations and lives, their own joys, their own passions, their own sense of loneliness or longing. And the way that we interpret music as a as a sonic metaphor for those feelings will change depending on on who we are. You know, there's great conductors that are very stoic on the stage and others that are very, very academic. And I think it's also uh, so much about the personality of the individual, what sorts of experience they had. What do you like on the stage? I, you know, the fir- the job of a conductor, really, the first job is to make sure everything is together uh, so that we're all playing at the right time, the right notes, and it's in tune. And then after that, that's when the magic begins. So at a certain point in the rehearsal process, it's our job to teach the musicians when to play and where to play. And then when we get on the stage, whether it's through facial expression or eye contact, it's it's how to feel about what we're playing. How do we want to play this line? What is the destination of this particular phrase? Where is it going? How much should we jump on it or should we skip over it or should we lie on it? You know, all the different ways in which we can approach a particular phrase or a, a particular piece of music. That's just communicated right at that moment through your stick technique, through your body language, through your through your eyes and facial expression. And that's what makes makes what we do so wonderful. Of course, as an audience, we can't really see your facial expressions. That's all just for the orchestra. Uh, and I and I always love watching guitar players on stage and seeing what kind of guitar face they have. So do you have do you have conducting face? <laughs> oh, I have millions of them. I keep I, I keep trying to cultivate more. <laughs> well, let me ask you a slightly irreverent question. Uh-oh. F- forgive me because uh, you are a conductor, but you are you're working with super elite musicians. They are usually top flight students when you're working with a professional orchestra, maybe not with a youth orchestras. And they've got multiple music degrees and they can probably read music as fluently as I can read a fish and chips menu. So why do they need a conductor? Oh, I think for every orchestra, even the most professional orchestras, they look to be led. They want somebody to make sure, as I say, that it's all together, that the orchestra as an ensemble are all playing with one unified voice. Within an orchestra of 80 or 100 musicians, there's going to be 80 or 100 interpretations uh, of, of a particular piece of music. And the members of the orchestra know that. And however, they know that they play best when there is one decision maker about certain things. Um, They play best when there is a leader that is strong enough to give them the pathway to go, but at the same time gives them the freedom to maybe wander here and there or go a little faster, a little slower. So that interplay is what's super exciting about great conductors and the interaction between the orchestra. One has to give the members of the orchestra individually, if they're soloists in the wind section or even in the string section, the flexibility to to do something that is special on their own, that really identifies them and their interpretation. But at the same time, leading the orchestra in one unifying concept. So take us back to the young Stephen Radcliffe. What were some of these seminal moments that set you off on your classical music and conducting career? Well, like so many students uh, that I'm working with now, it was really having a wonderful high school orchestra and band program at my high school. 
and the individual teachers that led those programs, always encouraging, always inspiring. You know, that was really the, the seminal moment that, that, hey, this is something that I love to do. And because I love to do it, I'm getting pretty good at it. And because I'm getting pretty good at it, it kind of gives me an identity as a middle school child in a big middle school. Who am I? Where do I belong? Where's my group? Where's my gang? Uh, where do I feel comfortable? And in music and in the arts, uh, those are places where students can go and feel like they have a place that they belong. And for me, that was very, very clear uh, in middle school and then later on in high school and then going on into conservatory of music and, and beginning a professional career. I just knew that it was the place where I belonged um, because I love the music so much. And I love the camaraderie and the people that I worked with playing music with my friends was and playing not just classical music and chamber music, but also playing in rock bands and jazz groups. I played in a Grateful Dead band. I was a guitarist. <laughs> just, uh, you know, the whole thing of getting together with friends and making music. It was it, it gave me a sense of belonging uh, and it was good, clean fun. So is guitar your instrument? No, no, I was a clarinetist and also played guitar and, you know, a little piano. And and then when I went to, to get my degree in music education, of course, I had to study all the instruments. So what made you move away from playing and into conducting? Well, you know, as a clarinetist, my goal was to become the principal clarinetist of the Boston Symphony Orchestra by the time I was 20, uh, which was an entirely unrealistic <laughs> <laughs> goal. But as I became more involved in clarinet playing, I realized that there were some musical limitations. Of course, there's great repertoire for the clarinet, but you don't have a holistic picture of the orchestra, which at that point in my life, I was totally devoted to the orchestra as an institution, as, a, as an instrument in itself. And I wanted to just be part of and probably wanted to have control over every aspect mm -hmm. <laughs> of the orchestral performance. I mean, probably a little selfish and egocentric <laughs> of me, but uh, there you have it. And and I noticed that my clarinet colleagues and professional people were talking about the incredible minute details of clarinet construction or you know, what size bell you have and whether you're using the bell rings or this mouthpiece and that mouthpiece and it. It wasn't so interesting for me, this, that, that sort of mechanical aspect of it. I wanted to be more holistic in my understanding and appreciation. So you said you played in a Grateful Dead band. And, I, and I'm curious, you know, you grew up in the 70s. You've got all this rock and pop and glam and punk vying for your attention. Huh. What was it that kept pulling you back to classical music? That is an incredibly deep, deep repertoire that one could go deeper and deeper into. Uh, you know, the Grateful Dead for all their wonderfulness and their, there are many other bands that, that I enjoy and still enjoy listening to, but, you know, they have a corpus of, you know, 40 songs or 30 songs. And when you look at the symphonic repertoire, uh, you know, I mean, Haydn has 104 symphonies, Mozart 40 symphonies, that's just the symphonies and goodness you put in the operas and the chamber music and the, and the divertimenti and just looking at, the depth of Mahler symphonies, it's just, there's so much there. And, you know, I still feel like I'm just scratching the surface. I, I still feel there's six more Shostakovich symphonies that I should learn. I love them. I, I just haven't gotten around to learning them, you know, you know, <laughs> so 
you could just keep going and going and going and, and not just Shostakovich, but Mahler and Strauss and Sibelius and everything. It's just an infinite repertoire. Well, you are an advocate of contemporary and 20th century composers, which means they're far more likely to be in the audience than, say, Giuseppe Verdi. And so, therefore, there's more of a chance that a contemporary composer might insert themselves into your process, your conducting. What are the spoken or unspoken rules between a composer and a conductor? Oh, I think it's different for every every composer. I've been fortunate to work with Aaron Kernis, who I prepared a, a number of pieces for. Uh, at one of them, actually, uh, I worked on a, a piece called the Too Hot Toccata with with Aaron, with my youth orchestra. Very complex piece, and he was very uh, very detailed about how he wanted things done in the rehearsal. And at a certain point, I said you know, Aaron, nothing could be more exciting than if you were to conduct this in the concert and the concert was going to happen about an hour away. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, really, really? Can I please? That would be great. Yes. So he conducted. Uh, and so there are those composers who want to have that level of control. And I am overjoyed to, I mean, what an honor to to prepare an orchestra for a composer of that stature. And then there are other composers who are, who you ask them, how do you like this tempo? Is it too fast or too slow? And the composer says, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, so <laughs> we did a piece by George Crumb some years ago, and we finished the composition, and we turned around and said, uh, Mr. Crumb, what do you think? Uh, would you give us our notes, please? And he sort of sat there and scratched his chin and said, that's a wonderful piece. I've never heard it before. <laughs> <laughs> so, you never know. We just did a piece here at the University of a German composer, Edgit Schneider, uh, which is a takeoff on the Brandenburg charity, fabulous piece called the Brandenburg Remix. Um, and we've been coordinating back and forth through emails about changes in the score and corrections and things like that. He's been wonderfully forthcoming with, with all sorts of ideas and things like that. So uh, it's one of the most rewarding things is to bring a new piece to life, uh, working closely with a composer. It just feels so excited, so much excitement to it. Well, let me ask you a bit about your philosophy on programming. You know, over the past year, there's been a lot of calls for change across all of the arts, but maybe especially in classical music where white musicians dominate in programs put together by white people, playing music by white people. And despite all the shouts of brava for these much needed changes, I sense that many organizations still feel compelled to play to the gallery and give audiences what they want. Beethoven, Vivaldi and Mozart. What's your philosophy on programming? I think that, uh, let me put it this way. I like to cook. I like to get friends together and we go into a recipe book and say, let's do this. Why not? You know, and you get a bunch of people and this person chops the onions and this person sautés the, the chicken breast and this person does that. And, the, and then we put it all together and we've recreated this this meal, uh, this this dish. And so we've never had it before, but it sounded great and it tastes delicious. And it's the same with music. Um, there are so many composers of color and, and composers that have been underrepresented whose pieces are now coming coming to light and that are getting published. One of the biggest challenges is just finding them. Uh, it's often difficult to find who publishes the music. All the music has to be rented. You have to get a perusal score either online or through snail mail. Um, but these are the recipes. And if there is 
a composition that I hear about through the grapevine or through reviews from other organizations, I immediately go try to find a recording of it, which is not always easy. But the more that these works are getting recorded and performed, we just did a piece by a wonderful African-American composer, Jonathan Bailey Holland, uh, here at the university called El Yaleo. It's a fabulous piece, which I have now in my repertoire and look forward to programming widely as often as possible. So it's just a question of these are voices that need to be heard because they really enrich the performance environment. And it's so exciting to have these works by Jesse Montgomery, a fabulous composer, uh, a woman of color who's just taken off and has fabulous music. All of this needs to be performed. It gives us such a great uh, new rich works to do, different perspective. And I think it's really an exciting time. On that, carrying on that subject of of playing works by black and brown composers and underrepresented composers, one of the challenges, I think, is that most of today's orchestral musicians were not taught a diverse repertoire because their teachers were not trained in a diverse repertoire. And so it seems absolutely vital that we teach today's young musicians to play Chevalier de Saint-Georges as well as Mozart and William Grant Still as well as Verdi and Florence Price and Enkiro Koye and Shirley Thompson. Is that happening? From an educational standpoint, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, the music that he composed, was essentially not any different from the music that Mozart composed. I mean, it was from a, you know, same from Florence Price. It's 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 Western music. It's Western-based music. You know, the notes are printed on the page. It's still the diatonic and harmonic system and so on. Uh, and I think what's exciting now is all of the different... Uh, Jonathan Bailey Holland has a number of, of cool pieces that are basically they're dance mixes uh, for orchestra. There are composers who are using beatboxes and creating all sorts of new colors and new textures from from the 21st century dance club scene, from house and trance and all of those things. And those are getting integrated into the orchestral sphere. There's electronic music that is part of the the instrument that is the orchestra. And for me, it's this musical material, the extent to which it can be brought together in a cohesive and engaging fashion, it's really no different than hearing Tchaikovsky. Um, there's a lot of people that have never heard Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, and then they come and they, they say, hey, that was nice, but that new piece that they did, that was super cool. <laughs> so, I mean, orchestras avoid that this new music at their peril. Because there are young people who have grown up with the music vernacular of the time that is built in many ways on the music of Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and Mozart, but is continues to go further. I mean, like I say, we stand on the shoulders of giants, but that's only so that we can see what is coming ahead. And uh, I think it just takes an acute uh a good eye and a good ear to know what's coming ahead, what your audience in your community would love and appreciate to hear and how that will broaden their perspective on all types of music. Well, you are the interim music director for the Missouri Symphony Conservatory and the conductor for the most advanced of its ensembles, the Missouri Youth Symphony. So tell us a little bit about what some of the initiatives are you are making happen for for this year's conservatory students. Well, what we're doing for this December concert coming up on December 5th uh, in the Missouri Theater at 3.30 is we are combining the Missouri Youth Symphony with the University of Missouri Philharmonic in a gigantic performance of two works by Italian composers, Otorino Respighi and Giacchino Rossini. 
So this is going to be about 120 musicians on the stage of the Missouri Theater. We're not quite sure everybody will fit, uh, <laughs> but it's going to bring down the house. Uh, literally, I hope the foundation is strong uh, because there'll be a lot of sound. And it's going to be a wonderful opportunity for these young musicians to sit side by side with their near peers and be part of a really humongous orchestra. Do you know in the... Uh, wonderful public school music system that we have here in Columbia and throughout the state. There are string orchestras and bands, but students don't have the opportunity to play in full orchestra that often. And this is an opportunity through the conservatory and through the youth symphony to play in a full orchestra, which is an orchestra that not only has violins, violas, cellos, and string bass, but also has trumpets and trombones and flutes and piccolos and clarinets and things. So that full orchestra repertoire is, you know, the great repertoire that we've all grown up with, and to be playing some of these large works like the Respighi Pines of Rome as a high school student, that's pretty amazing. Tell us a little bit about working with conservatory age musicians. As I said, you'd spent many years working with Seattle Youth Symphony, and I'm sure there are some universal hurdles that you have to help young musicians over and some universal moments when you can see the light bulbs go off. Tell us about the those moments of hurdles and enlightenment that is kind of a, a universal truth. Well, there are many. Uh, the great thing about our public school music teachers throughout the state and here in town is that they are able to you know, the, the most important thing for a musical leader is to teach students how to fix their own problems. Uh, in other words, the technical aspects of playing a violin or playing the clarinet, these are very challenging. Kids these days are so used to everything being instant. And I'm sure everybody said that in every generation. They probably <laughs> said that about me. But, you know, now we have with the Internet and with Instagram and TikTok and everything is just instant instant joy or instant sorrow. Gosh, playing a violin or playing a clarinet, it's really hard. There's so many physical challenges for a young musician to play the trumpet or trombone. There's a lot of breath that needs to go through the instrument. There are very, very fine adjustments in how much air you put through it, how tight your lips are around the mouthpiece, uh, what sorts of vowel sounds you're doing or or how you do a particular fingering, a shift, a bowing. All of these technical aspects are, are, require some attention. And we have wonderful individual studio instructors and wonderful uh, public school music teachers that really know how to fix the problems that young people have as they work through their musical lives and thus enable them to fix the problems themselves going forward. So I always like to say that there's I've had uh, the opportunity to work with some incredible conductors with the Seattle Youth Symphony. Uh, Kurt Mazur came and conducted the orchestra. He's a German conductor of great renown. Uh, Leonard Slatkin came and conducted our orchestra. And it was really kind of weird. They just weren't able to fix any of the problems. <laughs> They're just used to having fabulous musicians who, who had solved all of the technical problems. But if there was something that wasn't quite right, there was a, something a little out of tune, they couldn't really say, can you just, you know, do a different fingering or, or change the bowing or something. And, you know, at the same point, I'm not sure that I would be that successful in front of the Leipzig Gewandhaust Orchestra <laughs> or the Berlin Philharmonic, because uh, I'd always try to be fixing things. No, <laughs> we don't need to be fixed, sir. Uh, and of course, when you see the light goes on, when you see students 
playing through a piece. It's like, okay, we've rehearsed this section. Let's go back and start from the beginning. We're going to run through the whole piece. And you get them spinning and excited on the crescendos and the diminuendis and making something super tender and super sweet. Then they say, oh, my goodness, we're artists. We are able to express with our instrument. We're able to uh, to master this technical passage that enables us to get beyond it and and feel what it's all about. And to see that light bulb go on is, of course, really what keeps all of us in education going because we feel like, okay, my, my work here is done. <laughs> I've done something good in life. I've turned a kid on to this music that I love so much. And, and in doing so, we'll sort of ensure its continued appreciation and perpetuity. I mean, that's what we try to do is just keep this great music alive. I'm sure that every parent thinks that their child, every parent does think their child is extraordinary and gifted. Uh, there must be times when either through either lack of ability or just a lack of interest, you just cannot get a young musician to the place they need to be to perform with all these other people. How do you handle that? Yeah, I, I don't think it's really about, you know, people say, oh, you, well, yes, of course, I wasn't musical. So I didn't, I didn't. No, it's not, it's not that you weren't musical. You probably just didn't have, you didn't have the interest or there wasn't a mentor or a, or a friend or it, maybe it just wasn't your, like we were saying before, it wasn't your crew. It wasn't your club. It wasn't mm. where you felt you wanted to belong. And then there are people that just don't practice. You know, it's not <laughs> instant. It takes practice. And so at a certain point, those people get sort of self-select their their way mm. into something else of interest. I think what the challenge is, is, you know, when, when I was first started my career in education, the, the, the main issue was that kids are, are spread too thin. And I think that's probably continues you know there's they're doing sports they're doing the debate club they're doing you know student president or they're doing model un and they're playing in the band and the orchestra and this and that and the other thing they're doing in the school newspaper and you know there comes a point where you could do a lot of things halfway or do one or two things quite well and i think that that's a a good lesson that parents can start instilling upon students uh, in their first couple of years of high school as freshmen and sophomores. It's like, why don't you pick something that, that you really dig and dig in and get a little deeper into it as opposed to sort of just scratching the surface. And then there are students that, you know, you have to say, why don't you take a year off or take a month or two off and decide whether you really want to make this commitment. And sometimes they'll, they'll come back and say, yes, I really miss it. I miss not having my violin or my clarinet and I really want to come back. And then they do. Uh, and then there are others that, you know, they've basically self-selected themselves to be interested in something else, hopefully. They join a Grateful Dead band. <laughs> yes, there you go. As long as you do it well, right? <laughs> well, let's close with a little bit of music. I'm sure you have many favorite pieces. Is there one you would like to go out with today? I think that playing the beginning of the Respighi Pines of Rome, which we're playing in the Missouri Theater, God willing, with 120 people on stage, ages 6 to 60, I'm told. And I'd be the 61 person there. So, <laughs> uh, why not? 121 people playing the beginning of the Pines of Rome. Uh, that's, to me, just joyous, exciting, wonderful music. Okay, well, here it is. This is Ottorino Respighi's Pines of Rome, played here by the Sinfonica de Galicia.
was part of the opening movement to Ottorino Rispighi's Pines of Rome, played by the Sifonica de Galicia, conducted by Dima Slobodanyuk. My guest has been Maestro Stephen Radcliffe, Interim Music Director of the Missouri Symphonies Conservatory. And you can hear the Conservatory's Missouri Youth Symphony play alongside the University Philharmonic at the Missouri Theatre on December the 5th. Plus, the Missouri Youth Symphony, conducted by Maestro Radcliffe, will also be playing a chamber concert at Unity of Columbia on November the 30th at 6.30, I believe. To find out more about other concerts, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra and the Conservatory Ensembles have coming up, go to themosey.org. And maestro Dr. Stephen Radcliffe, thank you so much for spending time with us this evening. Such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, violinist and conductor, Maestro Scott Yu, pianist and Odyssey Chamber Music Series Executive Director Ayaku Suruta and conductor maestro Stephen Radcliffe. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more Peaks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri.